Until he got to the diapers part, I was looking around for a resurrection of Spurgeon or something. It's good to be with you this morning. I am here today in what is a labor of love, first and foremost, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, a labor of love for the SCV Pregnancy Center. And thirdly, a labor of love for you. I enjoy coming here. I enjoy being with you. Enjoy having quite a number of you worship with us on Sundays and participate in our church life and uh, eat our food on Sunday nights. It's good to see you and to be here with you. Let's pray and thank the Lord for the opportunity of gathering together. Father, in these moments, I would ask that you would be exalted. I ask that you would guide me as I would seek to share some thoughts, first of all, concerning the state of affairs with the Pregnancy Center and the need for help. And then as we look at your word, and as we consider your call to us to accept the challenges that are before us. Father, I pray for each one here today that your Holy Spirit would be at work taking words spoken and implanting them and causing those words to bear fruit. Lord, you know best what fruit needs to be born. You know what needs to happen. And so I would pray that your work would be accomplished. And as that is done, Christ will be magnified in all of our hearts. Thank you for this opportunity, in Jesus' name, amen. As has been mentioned, the Santa Clarita Valley Pregnancy Center is gearing up for its annual Walk for Life that it does in conjunction with other pro-life groups, Christian pro-life groups in the San Fernando Valley. On that particular date also, a number of other centers around uh, California will be having Walks for Life. Let me tell you just a little bit about the center. In case you are not aware of it, Santa Clarita Valley Pregnancy Center exists to help women facing crisis pregnancies. It used to be called the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Uh, That name was a little long, but it seems that as the center has been around these few years, God has been doing a marvelous work through it. Uh, Some of you are involved in it. Some of you are in training to be volunteer counselors. Uh, Many of you have participated in past walks for life. And we are grateful for your support. We count on the support of students and staff and faculty here to help the center. The SCV Pregnancy Center grew out of a vision of a couple of lay people within our valley who were concerned that something be done here to help stem the tide of abortion that was taking place and also provide Christian alternatives. It was founded with much prayer and labor on the part of many lay people even now. It only employs one paid staff member, Terry Murray, who is the director. They have a monthly expense need of about $6,500 a month. That's just to pay the, the basic bills. It does not cover the expansion of ministry or the needs that, that do exist, which would put the budget probably nearer to 8000 a month. The Pregnancy Center began just as a hotline and has grown into a, a service with its office and uh, counseling services available. They are now receiving almost daily referrals from schools, 
from public, including county health centers, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. They are even, even receiving referrals from Planned Parenthood because there are just so many needs out there, and we would not normally think of Planned Parenthood as an ally in the pro-life movement, as you're well aware. While I was talking with Terry on the phone yesterday, three calls came into the office, and there was no one available even to answer them. There's a desperate labor shortage. Because of the limited budget, all counseling is done by volunteers, and there's obviously a need for volunteers. Just in the last quarter of last year, 66 new clients uh, came to the center. Three repeat clients came to the center, and there were five little ones who, as a direct result of the counseling received at the center, entered this world. Angel, Ashley, Cassandra, Brian, and Addison were all born. Volunteer counselors and helpers are desperately needed, and, and you need to realize that some of the best counsel, counselors that have been provided to the center have come from the Master's College, from the student body here. The Walk for Life is the single biggest fundraiser for the center. It is, as those of you who have participated know, a walk held in the San Fernando Valley where we begin together and walk a course that uh, I was pleased to see, because I'm getting older, has been shortened. They, they, well, they've not, the numbers are the same, but they change from miles to kilometers, and I, and I like that, you know. It sounds more impressive to say you walked 20 of anything, you know. I walked 20 kilometers. That's, that's better than, what, 12, 13 miles. It's up to 20K, and the idea is that walkers get sponsors who will sponsor them, and, uh, you know, per kilometer. It is a demonstration also, in a very positive sense, of support for the pro-life movement in the San Fernando and Santa Clarita Valleys. As thousands of people walk together, not protesting anything, but simply seeking to raise funds and show that there is a presence there for the pro-life movement. There's a great need for walkers. Obviously, one thing that helps in anything like this is, is a larger number of people but what's even more important is that we have walkers with sponsors. People who are willing to sponsor those who are walking. And if you can walk, we want you to walk, but we want you to gather sponsors as well. If you cannot walk with us, uh, your sponsorship is appreciated. If you are physically unable to walk, there is all sorts of volunteer help needed at the site. And uh, so if you will simply call the Pregnancy Center office, there are places for you to work. One of the sobering aspects of, of an otherwise fun and uh, enjoyable time on this walk is the fact that just in the course of this, well, even the first 10 miles, as I recall last time, you walk past 8 to 10 abortion clinics on your way. And you are confronted with the fact that just on a nice little walk down some city streets, there's center after center after center taking the lives of the unborn. So I would encourage you to be a part with us on February 29th. If you can walk, walk. If you can sponsor people, sponsor people. And if you don't know who to sponsor, I happen to have a list right here for you to sign and sponsor me. I'm not one of Jerry's kids. I'm one of Terry's kids. And I, I need sponsors. 
I am promising extra stars in your crown if you sponsor me. No, I can't do that. I'd like to. There may, might be, but, but I can't promise it. But I'm looking for sponsors for my walk, so uh, you think about that. As I thought about what I wanted to share with you from the Word concerning this, I, I had kind of a struggle. I mean, number one, there are a few pro-life texts in the Scripture that, that are commonly used, but I run into a couple of problems. Number one, at a Christian college, I know that, that all of you have been exposed to, at some point or another to good, solid teaching on why the Christian community is supportive of the pro-life movement and why we are inherently pro-life why we view life as sacred, as a gift of God, and we protect it. And so knowing that, it's kind of like preaching to the choir about the value of music. Beyond that, two years ago I was asked to come and I put together the greatest pro-life message I could think of, and I gave it, and, and I don't like to preach the same message twice. So after using all the texts that I had, I, I thought, well, where do I go from here? And I began to think not just of the walk for life and not just of the pro-life movement, but I began to think about some experiences God has taken me through in the last year and some things He's been dealing with in my heart concerning the general inability of Christians in our culture to respond to the challenges that face us. The pro-life movement is a good example of one of those challenges one of the things that I find deeply disturbing is that we seem to be very cyclical in our support and our involvement in the pro-life movement. We get a Supreme Court decision that's in favor of us and we all seem to go, hallelujah, we're over the hump and everybody tends to back off a little bit and the media, of course, which is not one of our friends, begins to, to promote the pro-choice agenda Pro-life seems to lose momentum, at least in the media's eye, and we tend to believe it and fall back and not be as involved. There's been a general decline in giving and in involvement in the pro-life movement and in the pro-life cause among Christians. But it's not just the pro-life movement. Many of the challenges that have faced Christians in our culture have been unmet because we basically do not seem to have the spiritual stamina to face a battle. If you don't think so, talk to people who lead missions committees in most churches. Find out how easy it is to even get people involved in missions committees. Find out how easy it is to get people thinking about missions, giving to missions, and supporting missions by their own involvement. Evangelism continues to be the ministry of the greatest story never told as so many of us go on believing that it's someone else who's gifted in it who should be doing that. The level of challenge that we seem to be willing to accept is the fourth grade girls Sunday school class. Much beyond that, much that's going to require sweat, that's going to require money, that's going to require time, doesn't seem very popular anymore. Now, I'm not saying that that's true of you. As a matter of fact, the chances are you would tend to be people who would be more willing to accept the challenge. But many of you 
know just as well as I do that when you go back to your home churches, as I could have gone back to mine when I was growing up, the core of people willing to accept the challenge to, to really think about the idea of evangelizing our community, to really think about the idea of personal involvement in missions, to really think about the idea about getting involved in the pro-life movement or getting involved in a rescue mission. Not very many. I mentioned rescue missions and a lot of people don't even have any idea what it is anymore. First place I ever preached was a rescue mission. I was all of 17 years old at the time. I still have the notes. I pull them out anytime I get at all prideful. Because it was probably one of the worst messages ever preached. Homiletically, it was terrible. In terms of illustrations from life, I was only 17. I hadn't had one yet. I had to borrow from everybody else's lives. But you know something? In the course of that evening, three different people made commitments to trust Jesus Christ. You want to talk about pumped? I never looked back. But you know how many of us from our church of a few hundred would make the commitment to go down the second Monday of the month to the Flint Rescue Mission and sit with the drunks and occasionally have them during the invitation ask, would you repeat the question? Four, five. Everybody else assured us they were praying for us, but that was kind of probably kind of hard to do during Monday night football. What really brings this home to me are some experiences I've been through in the last 12 months that have just really shaken me. I'm a pastor, and so I'm supposed to have all the answers. Well, I'm just discovering that I'm learning the right questions. I had the chance last May to make my second trip down to Mexico to a tribal village that our church has begun to work with through Navajo Gospel Mission working among the Tarahumara Indians in the village of Chogita, 500 miles and 20 centuries removed from our lives. A place where there is no running water, a place where there is no electricity except the generator that the missionaries have brought in. And I had a chance there to see ordinary Christians do extraordinary things simply because that's what had to be done. I saw a man named Ventura who's in his 70s, we're not quite sure how old he is, he's not quite sure how old he is. A man who became a believer about seven years ago and is now the leading elder of a Tarahumara congregation that when we first went down in October numbered 40 adults, when we went down in May numbered 80 adults. A man who spoke Spanish as well as the Indian language, and I spoke English and could say, ¿Cómo está usted? And I carried a big Spanish dictionary and I <laughs> sat down with him on a log as, as he tried to explain things to me and teach me Spanish. And I began to understand him and work with him a little bit. And one day I remember him telling me about the work that was going on in the village and how things were going. And he was telling me what it's like to be the pastor 
of this village. And he said, but I'm not just the pastor of this village. And I had a translator who helped me with this. He said, I'm not just the, tra- I'm not just the pastor of this village. So there's a village over that hill. There aren't any believers there yet. There's a village over that hill. There's a village over that hill. And I'm their pastor too. And he would make treks over the hills to go share the good news with these people. Not Bible college educated, not seminary educated, simply a man who loved the Lord, studied the Word, become an elder and taken on that responsibility. Still had to provide for his own family. He's 70. He and his wife just adopted yet another child that was being given up by another Indian family. The child was, I believe, two months old. I got to see ordinary people doing extraordinary things there as I saw the believers facing persecution. Number one, from the Catholic Church, which was well established there, that had done nothing for this village for years and years, but now that an evangelical presence had developed, they were doing everything they could to shut it down. Seeing these people cut off from community water sources, seeing these people cut off from other things that that they had every right to simply because they were believers in Jesus Christ. And I saw them enduring that, and not only enduring that, but using that as a means of testimony for the glory of God. And I saw them carrying the gospel to people who needed to hear it, knowing that they would be rejected, but knowing that it was just what you're supposed to do. In July, I was invited to travel to Indonesia to speak to a conference of missionaries there. Now, before you think that that's a uh, wonderful thing, number one, a couple of missionaries were friends who wanted me to come and speak, and Number two, I paid my own way. You know, I'm one of these conference speakers who has to pay to speak. And, uh, you know, so for $1,500, you too can, you know, you can speak anywhere. But I went, they were having their annual retreat where all the missionaries with the agency pioneers gather on West Java to encourage one another and to, and they, they wanted me to speak because... Number one, I could speak in English and they were tired of Indonesian preaching and they wanted someone to speak like they were used to from back home. And so I came and I gave them, I think, 17 messages in four days. And uh, that, was, that was quite a challenge. But, you know, for a preacher, that's like hog heaven. You know, 17 messages. But while I was there, once again, I was just overwhelmed. Because here I am in the States, part of the you know, largest population of Christians anywhere in the world and we seem to be so powerless when it comes to facing challenges. And you go to Indonesia where 90% of the country is Muslim. And not only is it a Muslim country, but it's a country where while they say they have religious freedom, oftentimes the Muslims bring their presence in the government to bear and close down opportunities for Christians. A Muslim mosque can be built anywhere at any time. As a matter of fact, the government is funding over a thousand of them this year alone. A Christian church that wants to build, even if they own the land, they have to go through an approval process that will take anywhere from three to five years with no guarantee that they'll be allowed to build. Proselyting is considered bad form. Evangelism is in some areas illegal. And yet I met with missionaries who are there in the process of very matter-of-factly creating an evangelical presence and 
witnessing and seeing people come to Christ that have seen more happen in two or three years than some missionaries might have seen in 20 or 30. I was there while they were planning a strategy using a center that they have established that has already tripled in terms of resources just in two years. A center whose goal is to evangelize the 30 million Sundanese Muslims, the largest unreached people group in the world, without an indigenous church. And they've accepted that as their own task. 20 people. And you know the amazing thing is, we look at that 20 people reaching 30 million, you've got to be kidding. Well, somebody has apparently not told them or the Holy Spirit because it's happening. They, they saw over 500 Sundanese believers gathered a Christmas fellowship this last December. That was double the number of the year before. I saw on the island of Lombok two men named Cornelius and Joshua, Indonesian believers, planting a church planting seminary in the middle of an island with three million Sasak Muslims. The Sasak have no believers known among them. And these men have simply gone and said, we're going to begin a church planting ministry in a place where it's illegal. They realize that the last 20 people who've gone to Lombok to plant churches have left within two years, either discouraged, fallen into moral sin, or having been physically attacked and their health broken by the attack. But they go trusting God, and, and God has opened some doors in some remarkable ways there that I just received a letter this week that they have 22 students who joined with them in this very first year attempt to reach the Sasak. I saw the students of the Evangelical Theological Seminary of Indonesia, which, although it's called a seminary, is an undergraduate institution similar to yours. It is a Bible college, although they do have other general art, general ed courses. It's a little different in some ways, though. You see, their students are the same age as you, they have a three-year program instead of four, and, and, and they have one other difference, one graduation requirement that you don't have yet. And that is that by the time they graduate, in order to graduate, they must have planted a church and registered 30 baptized converts. I'm meeting with the academic department today and going to see if we can... Just kidding... So they take Old Testament survey in the morning and they go out witnessing in the afternoons. You know the amazing thing? They don't fight it. They just do it. They don't say, 30 converts in three years? I've been going to my church for 20 years. We haven't seen 30 converts. They just do it. You know what would have happened had that come to the Christian college that I attended, <laughs> boy, we'd have had all the theological arguments marshaled about why that's an unrealistic expectation and it's legislating to the Holy Spirit the number of converts that you must attain and blah, 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 blah. And you know something else? I'd have probably been in the lead arguing against it. They just do it. Why do such challenges scare us so. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 14. I want to just share with you quickly some thoughts from the Word of God about such challenges and what I believe God 
would say to us about why we need to consider accepting some hard challenges in our life, whether it's the pro-life movement or whether it's something else. Turn with me to Joshua 14. I tried to find an example of a young person who'd accepted a challenge, but the best one I could find was Caleb, and he's 85, so bear with me here. Joshua 14, beginning at verse 6. I'm reading from the New International Version because it's easy. Verse 6, Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly, So on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. May I suggest to you, first of all, that if we are going to be the kind of people who accept challenges, we must first of all see them. It is amazing to me how many Christians seem to be able to float through their American Christianity in their church and never see a challenge. Never see something desperately needing to be done. I'm amazed that we can drive through sections of town seeing day laborers desperate for help, not just financial help, but needing so much more, and drive by them and not see them. I'm amazed that for seven years I could be in an inner city church and yet have so many people who were part of that church not really see a tremendous problem with the fact that our entire congregation was suburban. It troubles me that we see things and yet we don't see them. We become blind to them. Caleb had not forgotten the challenge that he had seen He had not forgotten the land that he wanted to claim. 
Forty-five years before he had walked that land, he had seen that land, he had fallen in love with that land, God had promised it to the people, and he comes back along with Joshua and says to the people, yes, there are challenges, yes, there are hard things to face, but it's a great land. If God is with us, we could go in and we can conquer that land. But ten others said, oh, it's a wonderful land, all right, but you don't understand the logistics of this thing. This is going to be a costly endeavor. There are giants in the land. There are fortified cities against us. Yes, the crops are wonderful, but they're protected by people we can't fight. Let's just stay here in the wilderness. And those people won. And for 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. Then Joshua leads them into the land. They conquer the land. They have their central campaign and their northern campaign and their southern campaign and the campaigns are over and most everyone is saying, hey, we fought enough. Let's divide the land. Let's go into our inheritance. Yes, there are some mop-up battles to be fought, but things are pretty well over. You know, I think there are some churches that kind of feel that way. We've come in. We evangelized. We got our building up. We've got our programs running. We've got our Christian lifestyle set. Yeah, there's going to be the occasional person who needs to come in and you know get saved. There's going to be the occasional person who needs to be baptized. There's going to be the occasional work that, like that that has to be done. But basically, the important thing is that we get all of our programs going. We've got them going, and we'll just keep them going well. We've forgotten. We've forgotten that the very lifeblood of what the church is is evangelism and outreach and standing up for righteousness and proclaiming godliness and defending the needy and the orphan and the widow and the unborn. We've forgotten that we were born to be an army. We were born to be a move. Instead, we've become a machine. I talked with our college fellowship Sunday night in my home about the difference that it would make to really believe once again that we as part of the Church of Jesus Christ were part of a movement. A movement empowered by the Holy Spirit called to do great things. Instead, we are part of little church machines stamping out our product. Joshua and Caleb had seen the land. They had come into the land and Caleb had not forgotten that there was that hill country over there. Still hadn't been touched. And before he could view the, the major conquest portion of the work done, he said, there's, there's a battle i got to fight. He said, Moses promised me I could have that land. And I haven't forgotten. Most people were ready to stop fighting, but Caleb said, no, as long as there's this battle that means something to me, I'm going to fight. Secondly, he not only saw the challenge, he recognized the difficulty. He did not expect it to be easy. First of all, do you notice he calls it hill country? That's being kind. I grew up in the Midwest where we don't have mountains. You know, this would be the intermediate hill skiing, you know. 
I mean, they would occasionally build up a little mound and, and call it a mountain, but everybody from out west who has real mountains sees them and laughs at us. Well, you see, these were not Midwestern hills. These were rugged lands about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. Rugged, difficult terrain. Not only was it hill country and difficult terrain, but he says, you saw yourself that the Anakites were there. Now, who are the Anakites? Well, they're the sons of Anak. Who was he? Well, he was one of the Nephilim. Any questions? The Nephilim were the giants in the land that everybody was scared about. The big guys. Giants. And there were fortified cities. These people didn't just live in tents. They lived in walled cities. Cities that had nice big walls up there and fortifications and were ready for someone to come and attack them. These cities often fought against each other. He says, I know. The terrain is tough. The giants are there and the cities are fortified. There's going to be opposition. And again... I wonder sometimes whether or not our problem in accepting challenges is the fact that we've not recognized the difficulty at it. Some of us get all worked up about something. We can hear something for the pro-life movement and say, yes, I'll support it. And then the first time someone mocks us for being pro-life, we back off. We take a stand and, and we're glad to take the stand until it really costs us something, until we realize, you know, this is going to be hard. It's going to be long and there's no easy end in sight kind of a thankless thing to be a part of the pro-life movement in a society that is anti-life. And in fact, those of us who are involved with the pregnancy center realize very, very well that even though the Supreme Court seems to be in our favor and even though we may see Roe versus Wade overturned, the battle will not be over then. The battle will not be over when every state has passed laws. This will be an ongoing battle with probably the end coming somewhere just about the millennium. This is a tough task. It is a thankless task in many ways because the glamour of pro-life activity wears off when you have to do the fundraising and when you're having to counsel with people and have them, especially in some instances, when you've urged them to save their child, have them go out and abort the child and then come back to you and say, help me, I made a wrong decision. And yet the center reaches out to them in love with post-abortion counseling to try and help them deal with their sin and get over that sin and realize what they need to do now. It's hard. The challenges we face as a church in this day and age are not easy challenges. Even the challenge of living a life of integrity in the workplace is hard. If you don't believe so, pick up the daily news today and see the, the latest attack on Robert Vernon. A horrible, slanderous attack where two accusations, one by an a former LAPD employee who is now an employee of, surprise, surprise, Playboy Enterprises, and the second charge coming from someone who is competing with him for the chief's job. And those two accusations are quoted in the headline and in the first paragraph as 
of the article as if they are true without substantiation. Brother Vernon has gone through a tremendous trial trying to take a stand for righteousness and he needs our prayers and our support and our encouragement. And I have half a mind to cancel my subscription to the Daily News just because of what I've seen. I keep watching this happen and, and this was just the latest. The battles are hard, folks. Don't let anybody kid you into thinking you take a stand for righteousness. It's going to be easy. It's going to be tough. There's going to be hill country to maneuver through. There are going to be giants like the media that do hatchet jobs on the pro-life movement as they did on Primetime Live back last November, I believe it was, when they attacked pregnancy centers and tried to portray them all as misleading and lying and giving out false scientific information when none of those charges are true. There's hill country, there are giants, and there are fortified cities. The enemy is often entrenched. But we must learn, as Caleb had learned, to trust God. He says, yes, I know the hill country is there. Yes, I know the giants are there, and I know the fortified cities are there. But God helping me, I will drive them out. God helping. Martin Luther, when confronted by the Diet of Worms, was urged to recant and he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. The stand for righteousness, the acceptance of the tough challenges of life, demand that we become people who know how to call on the help of God when our cause is His cause. Caleb knew that God's command was that those Canaanites be driven out and it didn't matter how big they were. We know. We know that God has called us, His church, to be the light of the world, shining even though men love darkness rather than light. He has called us to be the salt of the earth that seeks to preserve it and seeks to uphold righteousness even though salt in a festering wound stings. He has called us to accept the hard challenges. And He has called us with the assurance as Jesus gave us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What are the tough challenges that you're considering? That you're ready to accept that you're ready to invest yourself in regardless of what the cost is. Are you considering perhaps involvement with the pro-life movement? And let's bring it down to brass tacks. Are you considering involvement with a pregnancy center that may need your help? Not everyone is called to do that and I'm not urging anyone who is called to another battle to fight that one. But God may be calling some of you 
take a chance, take a risk, to take a challenge. God has so much more for you than sitting in classes, sitting in chapel, listening, taking in, and becoming great sponges of spiritual truth. He has here in this room a group of people who if by God's grace they would accept the challenges that face us in this valley in terms of reaching out to people and mobilizing for world evangelism and upholding righteousness and meeting the needs of the poor the resources present in this room could turn the valley upside down. You know, there are a couple of television stations and other groups that are talking about using as their theme, make a difference. What a dumb phrase. Adolf Hitler made a difference. It's not enough just to make a difference. You need to make a difference that's worth making. Lots of Christians make a difference just simply by sitting, but unfortunately, it's not the difference that we need. Are you willing to make the kind of difference with your life that God would have you make? I say this to you not in any way rebuking you. If anything, I see it as much a rebuke to myself. I have had to go through an awful lot because after going through Mexico and going through Indonesia, I had to sit down and just look at myself and look at my life and say, God, am I investing my life where I can make a difference? And am, am I investing my life in that which is hard? It was David who, when trying to avert the plague that had come on the nation of Israel for his sin came to a threshing floor and the owner of the floor just wanted to give it to him and give him the oxen to make the sacrifice to God and he says, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. What are you giving to God that costs? What challenge are you accepting? Oh, I pray God that you will accept the challenge to make a difference that counts for the kingdom of God. Recognizing the difficulties, the hill country, the giants, the fortified cities, but knowing God helping you, you will drive them out. Father, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to be people who accept the challenges you place before us. We want to be the church that Jesus Christ envisioned when he said he would build a church that death itself could not overcome. We want to be that body of Christ that individually and corporately is constantly on the move looking for the challenges you have placed before us and saying those are not hard things to be avoided. Those are challenges to be met and God helping us, we will drive out the enemy. Lord, I thank you for each one here, and I pray that each one would accept that kind of challenge. That you might choose to raise some up to help with a pregnancy center. 
that you might raise others up to get involved in their local churches and help their local churches and their pastors and the leadership there become involved in those things that, that really count for you. Whether it be evangelism or missions or outreach to the poor, to the needy. Father, whatever it is, move us from the complacency that characterizes so many around us to that point of saying, I will accept. I want the hill country. I want to face the giants. God helping me, we will drive them out. What a wonderful God you are. Would you sing with me? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and our God is an awesome God. Again, our God.